Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're in Missions March, week number three, and um, I want you, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you have a Bible, it's right after Nehemiah, right after Job. Um, If it helps you, it's page 410 in my Bible, so I don't know if uh, that'll help you, if that helps any at all, but we're going to go to the book of Esther today is where we're going to focus our time together. Esther is... Only one of two books in the Old Testament that's named for a woman. One of two books. It's interesting because, believe it or not, Esther is one of the most controversial books in the Bible. And you say, why is it the most controversial book? Not because it's named for a woman. It's controversial because within this book, the name of God is not mentioned one single time. Not even one time in the whole ten chapters of the book of Esther is God's name mentioned. In fact, God's never prayed to in the book of Esther. No one through the entire book prays to God. No one spends time, so to speak, with the Lord. No one asks the Lord's questions. No one beseeches the Lord or seeks God's counsel through the entire book of Esther. In fact, a few times throughout Jewish history and both Christian history and Christian councils, they have tried to remove the book of Esther from the Bible. And they wanted to remove the book of Esther from the Bible for that very reason. God is not mentioned. Thankfully, however, God has kept it in there for us because I think it has something really important to teach us. And the fact that God's name is not mentioned is in part, part of the way that he teaches that to us. And what I want to do is I want to hope to demonstrate that to you, is that there is an actual reason. It's not accidental that God's name is not in the book of Esther. There is a reason in the, in the sense of it teaches us what God is trying to teach us through the life of Esther. So what I want to do today is I want to zero in on one specific moment in Esther's life that I believe parallels where we are as a church. I believe it parallels where we are as not only a local body, but the body of Christ in our nation. We're in this series, Missions March, after A18, Acts 1 and 8, where Jesus told them that you must stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And then, only after you're clothed with power on high, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You'll be my witnesses in Woodstock, Cherokee County, Atlanta, Georgia, and America. That's essentially what he's saying. That you are going to be my witnesses in the place that God has called you to live. So what I want to do this morning is focus in on one specific moment. It comes in chapter four, but to get to there, I'm going to need to give a little bit of backstory. So I want you to follow with me as I work through Esther chapters one through three. Esther's story begins circa 483 BC. Esther is a part of a large Jewish community that has remained in Persia. This is modern-day Iran, where God had sent them into exile about a hundred years ago. They had been sent into exile, the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah, and many of them are in Persia because they would not obey God. Most of the Jews had already gone back home to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls because in 536 B.C., which is about roughly 50 years after they had um, um, Esther's story begins, about 50 years after that, in 536 B.C., a Persian king named Cyrus, who was really used by God, not even as a follower of God, had issued an edict declaring that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. They could rebuild the temple. And so a large group returned back to the land under the leadership of a man named Ezra and under the leadership of a man named Nehemiah. And for 52 days, they rebuild the walls there in Jerusalem. These books, of course, Nehemiah and Esther, or Ezra come right before the book of Esther. So this is the part of Jewish history we're in. There was a large group though that chose not to go back to Israel. There was a large group that stayed in Persia and they didn't want to go with Ezra and Nehemiah. They were sometimes looked down upon by the Jews that were that were going back to the promised land because they had kind of assumed that these Jews living in Persia were living in disobedience. That they were kind of lax in their commitment to God because they had not gone back into the promised land that God had opened the door for. They in other words got too comfortable if you will in their captivity. Well Esther is one of the people who remains in the land. 
She's now been in Persia 50 years past the time that she should have been able to go back home. Are you with me so far? So Esther was one of those who remains in the land. She's an orphan girl who is being raised by her older cousin named Mordecai. Mordecai is her cousin, but he's keeping watch over her. Her parents, see, had both died in her young age. And so now she's this orphan girl needing the care of the people around her. Well, the story of Esther begins in chapter 1 with a king named Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus does what what kings do best. He's throwing an enormous party for himself. Isn't that what happens in our nation too? Kings and politicians love to talk about themselves. And they love to have award ceremonies for themselves, right? People in Hollywood love to have award ceremonies where they tell each other how great they are. So let's look in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And Ahasuerus, which is the king, displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of about a hundred days, 180 days. And yes, you read that correctly. He threw a six-month party for himself. Six months of partying in the kingdom for himself, right? I mean, this is a crazy, a real, real party. After which, the 180 days pass, the real party begins. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least. Look with me at verse 8. It describes the party. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. In other words, it was an all-inclusive party. You could drink as much as you want to drink, and the king's edict is get yourself plastered. Get yourself loose. 180 days, now we've left ourselves into a one-week banquet where everybody is supposed to drink. Look with me in verse 10. On the seventh day when the king was feeling good from the wine. In Hebrew, that is... um, a.k.a. stone-cold plastered, okay? They, they were feeling good. They were loose. Verse 11, Ahasuerus commanded his eunuchs, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the officials. The implication is he wanted his wife to come out completely nude except with a crown on her head to parade her beauty in front of his drunk friends. He wanted to bring Queen Vashti in front of the royal court and begin to show her off, so to speak. Well, not surprisingly, Vashti's not too excited about this and this idea, and so she refused to do do so. And good for her. Thank God she did. She refuses to say, I'm not going to be eye candy for your friends, king. But this embarrasses the king in front of his buddies, and he goes back into his bedroom, and he starts sulking, and one of his wise guys comes to him and says, King, bro, this is serious. I mean, this is serious. you got to do something about this. And he says to the king, not just for your sake, but for the sake of all men everywhere. In this next verse might be my favorite verse in all of Esther. He said, if you don't do something about it, this is what the guy says. Before this day is out, the wife of every single one of us will hear what the queen did and will start talking to their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to the contempt and anger throughout your realm. Verse 18. In other words, king, if we command, if when we command our wives to come out naked in front of our our drunk buddies and she won't do it, What's this kingdom going to come to? It's going to be complete lawlessness, anarchy. I mean, this is what he's saying. So Vashti gets kicked to the crib, but now Ahasuerus needs a new queen. So he comes up with this brilliant idea. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 1. He said, let us search the entire empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. And here's what we'll do. Then the young woman who pleases you most, Ahasuerus, will be made queen instead of Vashti. In other words, he holds a nationwide contest eerily similar to The Bachelor. And and here's how the contests work. Contestants were put into the king's harem and the king would try them out. Each night, one would appear before him. They would answer some questions. They would do some kind of talent in front of the king and then he would go sleep with them. After it was all over and he tried out, so to speak, every virgin, he would then pick his wife, his new wife, and she would be the wife of the king. She would be the queen. Now that probably to you and I sounds kind of like a contest that a nice girl would not enter. 
Like a nice girl who's got some morals, and I agree, but I'm not sure whether Esther had much choice in this matter. I want you to understand very clearly in this text. This text makes it clear that she was chosen to be in this contest, verse 8 of chapter 2. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not sure she could actually refuse. It's probably more accurate to think of, of Esther as a sex slave in our, in our modern era, a victim of cruel and exploitative power or a man of power who is wicked. On the other hand, though, I want to make mention that there doesn't seem to be appear in, in this text a lot of opposition from her or her family's part. Like you don't really get any kind of Daniel and the lion's den boldness and courage to stand up against the king no matter what. You don't get any kind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of I'll go in the fire and I will not bow before these foreign kings. We don't get this defiance like I'm going to obey God no matter what. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 20, the Bible says that her family concealed the fact that she was Jewish, which meant that she was silent about her God. She was silent about who Yahweh was. She was silent about Jehovah in front of the king. Because talking about God, talking about Jehovah, would have given away the fact that she was a Jew. Plus the fact that, that, that Esther and her cousin Mordecai both are still in Persia, It's supposed to, and and this is several generations, remember, after Cyrus had given permission for the Jews to return home. It's supposed to raise suspicion on your part when you read it. That's why Esther is written this way. It's supposed to begin to kind of kick in your intuition and curiosity to say, why is she indeed there 50 years later? All of this to say that this is a really messy situation I want you to understand, these are not exemplary people of faith. Mordecai's not an exemplary man of God. Esther's not an exemplary woman of God. Now, let's get back to the story. The good news is Esther wins the contest. Go with me to chapter uh, 2, verse 7. And this is why she won. And Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. The little Hebrew word here is she was bodacious, okay? She had it going on. She was something else. She was amazing in front of the king. One other detail before we get into chapter 3. The author tells us about this man named Mordecai. Mordecai, of course, was again Esther's older cousin. And essentially, he adopts her when her parents are killed. Now, I want to give you one quick point because this is incredibly, incredibly important. He works near the palace. His job is near the palace where King Ahasuerus was. And one day he gets wind that there's a plot to kill the king. And so he jumps in, stops it, saves the king's life, but the king never finds out. The king never finds out that Mordecai helped him. It's very important. We'll come back to it in a minute. Now, chapter 3 is where it really starts getting interesting. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Here comes Haman, what we call the villain of the story. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman the Agagite. He honored Haman the Agagite. Now, you know he's a villain because he's an Agagite. And Agagites were the enemy or the people in the Bible who had sworn themselves to be the enemies of God and who God had promised to destroy. By the, fa- uh, by the way, a, a fun fact that I learned this week as I was studying through this. Um, when the Orthodox Jews today in modern day history, when they celebrate the Feast of Purim each year, every year when they celebrate the Feast of Purim during the season when this happened in the context, they retell this story. And every time they say the name Haman, the children respond by hissing and booing. The moment they say Haman, everybody in the crowd hisses and boos. Sound- I thought it kind of sounded kind of fun. Y'all want to try it? All right, let's try it real quick, all right? Verse 1, Ahasuerus promoted Haman in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. Ahasuerus makes this full prime minister. He looks at this villain and he makes him prime minister. Verse 2, the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king, good job, keep it going, because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not pow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, who again was Esther's cousin, 
Why are you disobeying the king's command? Can I just stop right there? Scholars point out that verse 3 is the number one verse in the entire book. And the question that comes forth is, why are you dishonoring the king's command? In the central question of the book, we're asking the question, who's the real king here? Who's the real control individual here? And who am I going to bow down and give my life mission to? That's really the question. Who am I actually going to serve with my life? Well, the fact that that Mordecai won't bow down to Haman... um, Okay, you don't have to do it anymore. That was great. Okay, excellent. The fact that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman makes him madder than a three-legged dog trying to bury a bone on a frozen pond. And when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, this individual who has known God for so many years, he plans to kill all the Jews. Now Mordecai is now a part of being a part of Esther and Mordecai, the Jews to be killed by Haman. Well, these people have been here long enough, Haman says. We'll just destroy them. They won't bow to me. I'll give them a final solution. Let's wipe out the rest of the Jews. Well, he presents this plan to Ahasuerus, who evidently has kind of a a hands-off approach to governing. He doesn't really pay attention to what Haman's asking because he's, I don't know, planning his next six-month party. You know, I don't know. Maybe he's, you know, responding back on Twitter to people that are in his kingdom that are saying ugly things to him. And he, I don't know, whatever kings do, but he's doing something like that. Well, chapter 4, more Mordecai, who again hangs out near the palace, remember, because he's got a job there, he hears about this plot that Haman has to kill all of the Jews, so he sends this urgent message to Esther, his, his niece, and he says, Esther, you got to do something about it, Esther, you got to do something about it, I know you're the queen, so it's time to step in, it's time to save your, your people. Well, Esther sends a message back to him in verse 11 of chapter 4, and here's what she says, she said, Cousin Mordecai, I appreciate your concern, but what can a woman do? Do you remember how Ahasuerus responds to women disagreeing with him in public? Do you remember what happened to his first wife? Vashti just simply would not come out and be paraded nude in front of all his friends, and she got kicked out. Okay? She wouldn't strut her stuff. Imagine what he would do if I, a woman, had the audacity to confront him and suggest that he's making a bad governmental decision. He would have me killed. Paul's Persian law said that if anybody came before the king uninvited, they could be killed on the spot. If you walked into the king's palace uninvited, you could be killed. And for this little Jewish girl to appear before Ahasuerus, who is basically the poster child of male chauvinism, and tell him that he doesn't know how to run his government, that is indeed a death wish. Look at Mordecai's response to her, and here's where we're going to focus in. It's chapter thir- it's, it's uh, verse 13. It's very timeless, and it's our main text for the weekend. Look what he says. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, you're you're not really safe, Esther. Your your safety that you think is an illusion. You're not really safe. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God will get his will done. God will save America. God will fulfill the great commission in the earth. God will make it happen. But the question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? The question is, are you and your father's household going to perish? That's what Mordecai says to his niece. His will will be done. Now look what she says in verse 14, and here's our text. And who knows, Esther, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Who knows if you have come into God's kingdom and been divinely, sovereignly placed in this moment because God has a purpose for your life. Today's message is for just such a time as this. Just such a time as this. And as we've seen, listen church, Esther hadn't lived a privileged life and she didn't even really start out that well in her walk of faith. She had a, she had a checkered past. But this was a defining moment for her. And she responds with one, I think, of the greatest courage statements in the Bible. One of the greatest, most courageous moments that anyone exemplifies in Scripture. She says in verse 16, I will go to the king. It is even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so in chapter 5, on the appointed day, Esther enters in the king's court. And the king, who evidently is still taken by her beauty, thank God. God sovereignly gave her beauty. He did, and we'll look at that in a minute. He's still so overtaken by her beauty that he says, no, uh, he raises his scepter. And when you raise a scepter as a king, that means the person coming in can keep on coming in. You don't have to kill him. He raises his scepter and he says, my queen, what do you need from me? What is it that I can do for you? And she says, I'd like for you to come to a banquet tonight 
or tomorrow night. And I want you to bring your prime minister, Haman. I want you two to come to the party and I've got a party planned for you. The king says, well, that's kind of an odd request. So he and the uh, prime minister come to dinner the next night. And at the first banquet, Esther, I, I don't know, you want to read into it if you want to read into it. She doesn't mention anything about the prime minister's genocide plan. She doesn't say anything to the king that Haman has this intention to kill all the Jews. Instead, she just says, I know you like to party, so I'm going to get you really drunk. And I'm going to invite you back to the party the next night. So she says to Haman and she says to, more, uh, uh, to Hazarus again, she said, come back to a banquet the next night. Because she knows the king likes to party. Meanwhile, Haman leaves the first party and he's coming on from his first banquet really happy he's happy go lucky sitting on top of the the world right he's really feeling good about himself because all the people in the kingdom out of all the one the queen specifically chose him he's got like a trio with the king and the queen he's eating in the king and the queen's party he's a part of it everybody's gonna bow down to me he makes him feel kind of like I'm the power team in the kingdom and he's going home he passes through the city gate and when he does Mordecai is standing there and Mordecai does that thing that Mordecai does everybody else is bowing down. Mordecai is just standing up, you know, like loser, you know, on his, on his forehead or whatever he does. He's looking at Haman saying, I'm not going to bow to you. I'm not going to bow to who you are and who you think you are. And, and everyone else is bowing down. Mordecai chooses not to, to bow down. So that kills Haman's buzz. And and he decides he just can't wait to kill Mordecai with the rest of the Jews. He's going to kill him tomorrow morning. So in the middle of the night, he orders that his servants come around him and he, gets a, he wants a 75-foot gallows. And he wants to hang Mordecai the very next morning. He plans to ask the king permission when he walks into the palace the next morning. What well, just so happens on that same night, the king can't sleep. And at 2 a.m. in the morning, he says to one of his guards, go into my king's library and get a book. Just pick up a book. And the guy goes to his library, picks up a book, and starts reading the book. And it just so happens to be the book that recounts the story when Mordecai saved the king's life. It just so happens to be the book of of when Mordecai years ago had saved the king's life. Well, the king says, well, this is remarkable. He said, how exactly, servants, did we reward Mordecai? And he said, well, based on the record here, uh, we didn't. We didn't reward him ever. See what the king says? The king says, first thing in the morning, we are rewarding Mordecai. So as soon as the sun rises and the king gets to his office, guess who just so happens to walk in the room first? His name is Haman. And he's come to ask permission from King Hazarus to kill Mordecai. But before he can say anything, before he can ask permission, he says, uh, hey man, I got a question. Did you get it? (laughs) Hey man, hey man, yeah. Hey, man, I I got a question. He said, what should be done for the man who the king wants to honor? And, of course, Haman, because he's prideful and narcissistic, he thinks he's talking about himself, right? And so he says, well, you know, king, uh, no big deal. I think you should put a wreath around his neck and let him be paraded through the streets and let a high-ranking government official call out as they drive through the streets. I want everybody to say, this is a man whom the king loves. And the king says, great idea. The guy I want to honor is named Mordecai, and the guy who will do the shouting is you. Now, that's pretty doggone funny. I don't care who you are. I mean, that is pretty doggone funny. He's standing there in front of the king and says, I want you to honor Mordecai. Well, after this honoring session, this little charade, Haman is madder than a mosquito in a mannequin factory. So he plans to kill all the Jews and his plan goes into overdrive. He's ready to just destroy all of the Jews in an instant. Well, that night... Remember, he's got to go to the Esther second banquet. So he gets to Esther's second banquet. And this time, Esther tells the king about the plot to kill all of her people. And, he ref- and she reveals for the first time to her husband, I'm actually a Jew. I'm actually a Jew king. And the king says, who would, who would conceive such a plot against you? And Esther points across the table and says, it's Haman. It's Haman who has his mouth full of mutton. And he says, behold the man. Well, now it's a, a Hazarus' turn to get mad. So he storms out of the room in rage. And, and, and Haman stands up and goes over to, to, uh, to Esther and starts like pleading for his life. 
Well, he happens to trip and fall on top of her. So the king, Ahasuerus, comes back in, and he is now on top of his wife. And he says to him, as he's on top of his wife, he says, what, you're now trying to rape my wife also? And he orders Haman to be hung on the next available gallows, which, of course, just so happens to be the gallows that he had constructed the previous night before for Mordecai. And so it is with Esther, who got a really rough start in life, saves the Jewish people. She fulfills her mission. And her courage transformed our lives too because a few generations after this, one of the descendants of the people that Esther saved that night would be visited by an angel and told that she was pregnant with the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus came into the world through Mary and he died for our sins and he died for your sins and my sins. And now we sit here worshiping him today because of the courage of an orphan girl to stand up in courage and to stand up and say, if I perish, I perish. But what I'll do is I will risk my life for the sake of this cause. We're here. I believe Esther's story serves two purposes in the Bible. It shows us, number one, the remarkable way that God brought Jesus into the world. And number two, it shows you the way that God wants to use you in his global purposes. The way that God wants to use you and his purposes in the earth. I believe that some of you, and listen to me, church, I'm trying not to be over spiritual here. I believe that some of you and us at a church, as, as a church, we are at a defining moment in our faith. And like Esther, I think Esther's story shows us four things. Let me give them to you. Number one, Esther shows us the story of Esther, four ways we can seize our divine moment. Number one, we got to realize that God can use Mordecai's and Esther's. God can use Mordecai's and Esther's. Mordecai's are the kind of people that you normally think are in church. Mordecai's are kind of the good moral people. They're sincere in their faith, right? They're hospitable people. They hadn't been involved in many major scandals. They have pretty vanilla testimonies. The worst thing they've done in life is speed down 575 and, and where, where the, the 342 um, Holly Springs cops are every single day and they get people right. Or they forget to recycle, okay? Like this is, this is the Mordecai people. Like, you know, like we've asked Meredith's mom before, like, can, like, Teresa, can you tell us like one of the worst things you've ever done? And she literally like racks her brain. She's like, I lied to my friend one time. We're like, oh God, sinner, you know, sinner. I mean, but these are the Mordecai people, okay? These are the Mordecai type people. Now Esther's, and they're boring. Or Mordecai people's testimonies are boring. Now, I mean, that really, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. They're boring in the sense that, the, you know, you don't see any crazy kind of conversion moment. But it, in a world that is crazy and chaotic, their testimonies are very faithful and very genuine that helps people to realize who did not have a normal kind of history that I can actually have a normal history, that my family can be different. Now, Esther's are the people whose lives are filled with shame and regret, filled with compromises, filled with mistakes. Maybe in this room today, like Esther, you've been the victim of someone else's manipulation. Maybe you've been the victim of sexual assault. Maybe you've been the victim of physical assault. Or maybe you look back and what you see is that you've not always acted with courage and you've not always acted with faith in your past when you should. And what you need to see is that God has a plan to use you also. He doesn't just use Mordecai's, he uses Esther's. Esther, listen, is the one that God uses to preserve the messianic line. Esther is the one who God uses to preserve the messianic line. Why not choose Mordecai who's taking care of this niece? Why not use another faithful Jew in the kingdom? Why not? It has to be to show us that God brings his salvation into the world through the most unlikely weak instruments who are just available for him to use. Out of all the people in Israel, this is whom God uses to bring salvation to the world. God sees a young orphan immigrant who has a checkered past and says, I want to use her to preserve the messianic line. This is God's heart for his mission. This is God's heart. My point is this. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your ability is. It matters what your availability is. Doesn't matter what your history is. Doesn't matter what your your own abilities and feel and competence brings to the table. No, it matters how available are you for God to use. Listen to me, church. God has placed many of you at a very specific place with a very specific opportunities for his kingdom. And I know you even feel like I've got a checkered past. I've got a checkered history. But I want you to look around this week and you go to church and when you go to work this week and when you serve in these opportunities, I want you to look around and realize that you're in a palace. Now I know it's not a real 
little palace, so to speak, but there's a place that you live where you've got a chance to influence and literally save the lives of others. You have a chance to speak words of blessing and words of commendation and words of life to the people around you. And maybe when you look back with a lot of regrets as to how you got where you are, maybe you've been a victim. Maybe you've been destroyed in some way. But let me tell you something. You're here now. And God wants to start a new thing with you beginning right now. God wants to start something with you right now. He wants to begin it today. He wants to make you brand new today. And he wants to commission your soul today. He wants to speak to you and give you purpose today. Esther didn't get off to the best start. But in her defining moment, she put her yes on the table. And God put her yes on the map. And what God's asking us to do is to put our yes on the table to sign the blank check and say, God, you put it on the map. Lord, you tell me where to go. You tell me what to do. You, you show me who to speak to. You show me who to serve. Some of you, that's where you are today. It's never too late for you to begin the journey of faith. It's never too late for you to begin the journey of the mission God's called you to. You are created, Ephesians 2.10, in Christ Jesus. You were created to do good works which he prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And salvation, if anything, is about new beginnings and God's ready to start a new beginning with you. God's ready to start a new purpose with you. So quit looking back. Quit regretting. Yes, others have mistreated you. Yes, you've been done wrong. Yes, you've made mistakes, but God is ready to start a new thing in you if you're willing to put your yes on the table and say, God, I want to make myself available for your calls in this day. God has freed you from your shame. He has set you free from the victimization of your past. He has liberated you and he he wants you to walk forward and he wants you to serve others. He's got purpose. He's got destiny. Number two, this story teaches us that God has been at work in your life whether you recognize it or not. God has been at work in your life whether you recognize it or not. John Wesley called this prevenient grace, grace that woos you to himself. God's been working. When you go on a mission trip, you don't go to a nation and all of a sudden bring God to that nation. God's at work in that nation long before you get there. God's at long at work in Clarkston, Georgia before our young people and those enjoy this mission trip this summer. God's been there long before. How arrogant of us to think that we in the sense are just bringing God. God's at work in hearts. God's at work. God's at work in your life long before you ever realized it. And again, where is the name of God in this book? Not one time. Not a single time. But the fingerprints of God are all over this book. Are they not? I want you to think about the so-called coincidences that led Esther to being in this position. Let's just look at the coincidences. Queen Vashti just so happens to upset her husband, and he just so happens to come up with a contest to replace her with Esther that Esther has already been designed by God to win. And Esther just so happens to be Mordecai's cousin who just so happens to hear a plot about the king, and he saves the king. And it just so happens that for some reason he isn't honored at that point, but his act of, uh, of heroism gets buried inside of a book. And it just so happens that the night before Mordecai is to be hanged, the king can't sleep, and it just so happens that the guy who goes to get a bedtime story for the king, out of all the books that he could have put off the shelf, he pulls out the one that tells the story of Mordecai saving the king's life, and it just so happens that when the king decides that they need to honor first in the morning Mordecai, the first one to walk in the room is Haman, and it just so happens that at the banquet where Esther unveils Haman's evil plan that the king just so happens to come back at the moment, Haman is is trying to rape his wife and it just so happens that when the king orders Haman to be hanged the only gallows that are available are the ones Haman built for Mordecai I say all that to say this church you can't write a script any better than this coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous that's coincidence coincidence is when God chooses to be anonymous when God's at work in the situation without your clear, expletive, kind of explicit knowledge of what's happening, do you realize what the book of Esther is teaching us about history, church? You realize... Do you realize what Esther's trying to tell you about your life? God has the whole system rigged for the Great Commission. God has the whole desire. He's sovereignly weaving the stories of his people for his redemptive plan. And I'm not saying that God causes and the causation of everything that happens in your life. But I'm telling you that God will weave his story, even your story, for his purpose. He will weave it. Listen to me, church. 
You have a divinely appointed role in the kingdom and you have been divinely, sovereignly shaped to fulfill it. And you'll never feel fulfilled and you'll never find your place in life until you do what you've been created to do. Think of the palace as your place of opportunity. That's the place that God has placed you in this season. There are people that God has put in your life. He intends for you to share Christ with. There is people, your palace of your dorm room, the palace of your classroom, the palace of you school teachers, your your place of, of teaching, the palace of the business that you work in, the palace of your neighborhood, the palace of the office complex. He puts you in the cubicle that you're in. He puts you in the company that you're in. He puts you in the job that you're in. God uses bar, uh, barbers and, and bankers and tellers and ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. It's why he puts you where you are. He has given you certain platforms from which you can bless and serve others. He's given you certain abilities in which you can speak life to others. He's given you certain professions and divinely, sovereignly shape your profession so you can serve in it. The passions he's given you, the experience he's given you, the burdens he's given you. You've been given financial resources for just such a time as this to enable our church and to enable this church in Woodstock and from here to bless bless this city and to bless the world. Now you are where you are. And I know you may be in seasons you live with regret, but God is not calling us church because we are able and God is not calling us because we have a perfect history. He just wants to make us, or us to make ourselves available to him. I've told you the season my wife and I've been in and I got to a place in prayer this past Tuesday night with my face in the carpet and I said, God, I did not choose this. I did not call myself into faith. I did not call myself to plant a church so Lord it's your deal it's your battle you take it on you 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 help me persevere you give me endurance because it's your idea God it's not mine it's his mission I didn't choose this you didn't choose this you didn't choose Christ he chose you he wants you to continually to avail yourself to him and some of you all that God needs to reach this city, he's already put in our hands. We're not the most impressive people in the world dwelling place. We're not the richest, but we are here at this moment and this time, and our God has rigged the system to bring the Great Commission to its completion. He has. God has. God wants to. The God's desires that none should perish. All that God needs to reach the city, he has given to us. It's not like God's up in heaven saying, well, if dwelling place can just get a few rich people, you know, they just get a few more rich people, then all of a sudden they'll have the money to do it. No, no, no. God says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. And as we continue to reach people, resources will come into the kingdom. And it's not like God is hindered. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's put everything we need in our hands to make a difference that he's called us to do. You have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. My question is, have you put your yes on the table? Have you put your yes on the table? Have you said, yes, Lord, whatever you want to do, God, yes, I say to you. By the way, for some of you, you don't even know God yet. And you need to realize that God brought you here this weekend in pursuit of you. Sometimes when I'm preaching up here, I look around and I find people that are new. And while I'm preaching, I start wondering what their story is. I wonder what that person's story is. I wonder what they've gone through. Let me tell you here, you're here this morning because God's been pursuing you. And you told your friend no a time and time again. And you told him, nope, not coming. I'm not coming, I'm not coming. But you're here today because God's been pursuing you. And God loves you. And it's not an accident you're here. Oh, no, no, no. It's not an accident that you have moments of grace. It's not an accident that God reaches you and speaks to you in ways that he wants to speak to you. No, he calls us. He woos us. He's trying to get your attention. I'm just here to tell us this morning, you being here today is not your idea. It's not your idea. It's God's idea. Number three thing we learned from Esther, you... You can't hold on to life, so might as well risk it for the kingdom. You can't hold on to life. You can't hold on to it, so might as well risk it. Now, understandably, Esther demurs when Mordecai urges her to go before the king. She knows she could die, but watch how Mordecai responds, verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. In other words, Esther, your safety is a myth. 
Y'all follow me for a minute. Your safety is a myth. The word perish or the, is the, or the word destroy is abad in Hebrew. And it, it occurs more in this book than it does in the first five books of the Bible combined. In other words, this is a book that's reminding you that death and danger are always nearby. That death and danger are always around us. And what's certain, he tells her, is that God will accomplish his purposes. God will fulfill his words. In other words, Esther, you might die either way, so you might as well die doing what's right you're going to die soon anyways you might as well risk your life and in the same way I want to tell you today your safety is a myth my gosh I don't know how much clearer I can be with you with the tragedy my family has experienced over the last 14 days of a man brought and taken from his life in an instant And his family never has the chance to communicate to him. His kids never have a chance. Your safety is an absolute myth. At any moment, you could get a disastrous phone call from your doctor that would change your life forever. It could happen tomorrow. I may not make it to ever preach ever again. I could walk into work one day. You could walk into work one day and you find out you no longer have a job. Safety is a total illusion. So you might as well bet your life on what you know will last. You might as well give your life to something you know will be staked in eternity. It is foolishness to pursue safety. It's foolishness. Knowing we come from another kingdom and world. It reminds me of the words of Jim Elliott. He was the missionary to Ecuador who was martyred in his late 20s, you remember. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Leave it up there. Let me tell you what you cannot keep. You cannot keep is your life. You will die. You cannot keep your life. You cannot keep your job. Everything that you think you can keep, you cannot keep. You cannot keep your health. You cannot keep your marriage in the sense that it's going to go into the next kingdom. You cannot keep your life. You cannot possibly hold on to your life. But let me tell you what you can't lose. You can't lose what you've staked in God's kingdom. You can't lose any person that you've reached out to. You can't lose any dollar you've given in a tithe. You can't lose any offering you've given with generosity. You can't lose any effort you've given on the mission field. You cannot lose anything you've done for the king and his kingdom. It goes as a stake in eternity that will not be lost. It will not be lost. God keeps a perfect account of everything you do for his kingdom. So bet your life on that. Give your life in allegiance to what is eternal. I have tried to rearrange my life according to the one moment I know is going to happen. And I don't know how I'll die. I don't know if I'll die in a car wreck. I'll die of a disease. I don't know if I'll die in my bed. I'll die at hospice bed. I don't know when I'll die. I don't know if I'll die this afternoon. But I do know one moment in my life. One moment in my life is when I will stand before the king of all eternity. I'll stand before the one whose eyes are like fire. I will stand before him and I will be judged on my faithfulness to do what he's asked me to do so I can reorient my life around that moment I can reorient my life to say Lord it's your mission I desire and your mission alone Lord I want to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all things you've commanded and lo Jesus you'll be with me to the end of the age I've told you before that our ministry is is like the proverbial woodpecker. Remember I've told you this before? This is probably my kid's favorite illustration I tell. There's the proverbial woodpecker is there on the... He's on the uh, telephone pole one day and he's just tapping. He's just tapping. Not really making much difference on the telephone pole. He just keeps on tapping. He just keeps on praying. Keeps on witnessing to his people. Keeps on witnessing to his circle of influence. And all of a sudden, God sends a lightning bolt from heaven and poof, hits the tree. Splits it in two and... And the woodpecker goes back and he's, he's thinking, woo! And he goes, flies home and gets all his woodpecker friends. And they come back and he says, there she is, guys. There she is. I split her in half. You know what our ministry is? All we're doing is we're just tapping on some people's doors and we ain't doing much. And we ain't doing much, but we just keep on doing it year after year. We keep on witnessing year after year. We keep on giving faithful year after year. And finally, God's lightning rod of his power, his wisdom, and his mercy and his kingdom will break in and split it in two. And you know what we'll do? We'll make up little cards like this is how many people we've seen in Dwelling Place Movement. And this is how many churches we've planted over the last 10 years. But in our hearts, we'll know we didn't really do anything. 
anything. All we did was simply tap on the telephone pole. All we did was simply continue to be faithful to what he's asked us to do. And at some point and someday, his power will come and split the hole in half. He'll split the entire pole and say, you know what? This is what the Lord has done. Let us rejoice and be glad in what God's done. Some of you, you have great wealth. And in eternity, you're going to lose it all. You're going to lose it all. You might as well invest a large chunk of it in the things that will last forever. I thought about taking the moment today and have you write down the five things that you own of the most monetary value. Let you put them on the paper and then I want you to look at them and realize you won't take one of them with you. None of them. So if you can't take them with you, you might as well go ahead and sell one of them now and invest it into that which matters. If you can't take it with you, might as well go ahead and leverage it now for the sake of the kingdom while you're living to see lives be brought in the hour that you had to live on this planet. God is calling. Lastly, the need is urgent. Come on, Maddie. The need is urgent. Esther stood at the crossroads of literally literal life and death moment for Israel. People's lives were on the line. I want to tell us today, we stand also at the crossroads of life and death for others. We stand at the literal crossroads. And I know it's so easy to get wooed and tempted into our daily routine to think that there are people around us that are not eternally headed for a crisis eternity in hell. What I've learned is that hell is an inconvenient truth, no doubt. But hell really doesn't bother us until we have close friendships with people that are heading there. It really doesn't make its impact and its mark on our lives until we get close to people who are headed there. We stand at a literal crossroads for this moment in history, for this city, for this community, for the place God has called you to be. Think of this, folks. Don't don't dismiss this morning. Do not let this just be church. You stand at the literal crossroads of life and death for people. On average, around 60 babies will be aborted in our area tomorrow. Every day, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 25,000 children die from starvation or or a a preventable disease. About 25,000 a day. There are more slaves around the world today than in any other time in all of history. Most tragically, there are millions of people around us that will spend eternity in hell. There are 3.1 billion people in the world without a true, authentic gospel witness. How dare we sit by? How dare we live apathetically? How dare we live comfortably and not on mission? 3.1 billion people don't know Jesus Christ. Don't lose the impact of that last one. I talked to a lot of college students. I did college ministry for 10 years. College students love to help in the global suffering, and that's awesome. College kids are moved by the needs of the world. That is awesome. I don't want to take that from you, but let me tell you, the greatest need is not food. The greatest need is for the gospel. And the greatest suffering is eternal suffering. And for some of you, your heart breaks for those who hunger. That's awesome. But the greatest hunger in the world is for the bread of life. Some of you, you yearn to see people freed from slavery. That's awesome. But the greatest slavery is slavery to sin. And yes, we should. If we're going to meet the needs, we're going to meet the needs physically in a person. We're not just going to meet a spiritual need. We've got to give them food. Yes, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs should be true and the way we minister to other people. But let me tell you something. Of all things to give your life to, the gospel is the most important thing to give your life to. It's not that we should ignore the other things. It's just that the gospel is paramount. That we got to give our lives for the gospel in our community. That we've got to be people who reach to our friends and our neighbors daily to say, you know what? Jesus loves you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he's done. And Esther's life shows us that these issues are life and death importance. And just like Esther, we can't ignore those life and death realities. We can't ignore them. We have to seize our opportunity. Listen, Dwelling Place Church, Esther's story in the Bible is a great story, but it's also a picture of your life. We're in the same moment as Esther. We are in divinely orchestrated moment with life or death implications, and we've been placed here for such a time as this. You've been placed in your family for such a time as this. As we move forward in the church, I told you earlier, God 
doesn't bless us to increase our standard of living. He blesses us to increase our standard of giving. And we're in the process right now as a church of moving forward and what looks next, what's next for our community. What's next not only just in the terms of our facilities to be able to host and disciple and train more people for the Great Commission, but what that means is that on the very forefront of what we're about to do, we're on the verge of people having to make sacrifices. And people are going to have to understand that there is an opportunity to make a sacrifice to say, I'm going to give to the work of God's Spirit in this community and the work of God's Spirit in this church. That I can begin to pray and ask God, would you increase me on every way? Not so that I can just increase, but Lord, that I might be a blessing of generosity to the people around me. That I might serve more effectively. If you're new here this morning, let me tell you something. I invite you to join us. You say, how do I join you? How do, how do we join? How, how do we get involved? Well, there's multiple ways to get involved. You can get involved in a missions opportunity this week. Another way you can do it is to give. You can give. Now, we don't all ask first-time guests to give. We don't ask that. We want people who this is their home to bring tithe into the storehouse. But you say, I want to give. I want to be able to give to the work of God's Spirit in this community. I want to be able to give to the work of what God's doing in the days to come. I want to give. I want to give of my life by connecting to a connect group. I want to give of my life by being in growth phases that starts back in April, the second Thursday in April. I want to, I want to serve. I want to be all in. God has put us here for this moment for just such a time as this. And Lord, maybe you put this seed in my hand for just as such a time as this. I want, I want to use this seed to bring salvation to other people. Where you can say today and this morning, I God put my yes on the table and I want you to put that yes on the map. Where do you want me to be? How do you want me to serve? I don't know, church. I'm just of the opinion that when God and Jesus lived on this earth and died on a cross for six hours and on the third day rose again and spent 40 days on the earth and then ascended to his father. I don't think he had what we often have in mind as it relates to the church. I was telling a brother the other day, he was asking me, what should I do as I've come to know Christ? And I said, here's what you do. I want you to faithfully open the scriptures and forget everything you've learned about church, everything you've learned about experience, everything you've learned, because that's just theology that they fed you. I want you to just open mind and open the Bible, open the scriptures and faithfully be bold to do what they tell you to do. And I don't know about you, but if I faithfully read the scriptures and just opened the Bible and read the scriptures and I just said, okay, I would realize very quickly that I am on mission. And I am to make disciples everywhere I go. I probably wouldn't think, let's have a gathering. You know what I would think? I would think I'm on a mission. And as I'm on a mission serving people, I'm going to get beat up by the world around me. So by default, I'm going to find other believers around me because I need their encouragement to keep on being on the mission. So I'm going to find a group of believers called a gathering, a local context, a local church to come and belong and be a part of. Because when I get together on Sunday, I can encourage my brother. He can encourage me. Let's keep going on the mission this week. Let's be faithful on the mission this week. I probably wouldn't say, you know what? If I open the Bible and I read this and I see that the disciples are able to go to the ends of the earth and they're able to share the gospel. It's crazy. It's radical, but it makes sense. You know why it makes sense? Because they saw a dead man get up out of the grave and walk for 40 days. And they watched a dead man who was now alive ascend to the Father and say, go and tell everybody. So they're thinking, well, I, I, I got to tell everybody. I, I, don't really, I don't really care about my possessions anymore. I, I don't really care about the things that I'm trying to keep for myself. I just want to be a part of the family and a part of the mission. It's radical, church, but it makes sense. And if, 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 if you were to look at us today, if somebody were to read our story today, in light of everything they've read in the Scriptures, in response to that, they met together once a week. And they sang songs and somebody talked. And they did it again the next week. And they did it again the next week. And some of them tithed boy look at us and say you didn't see a dead man get up again you're lying you're full of it you're full of it because if you saw a dead man live again you'd be on mission you'd tell everybody you didn't see a dead man get back to life again you didn't see a dead man resurrected all you're doing is coming on Sundays listen to a man teach and sing some songs that's not that's not seeing a dead man live again when you see the resurrected Christ you can't help but to tell people Jesus is the way the truth and the life Jesus
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I want you to know about my resurrected Savior. I want you to know about the one who loves you so. And people say, oh, they've seen dead men. They saw dead men get up again. Woo! They've staked their life on something of eternal significance because they're making disciples. Our strategy is to gather, to group, to grow, and to give as we go. 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 Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age for such a time as this. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.